Before we begin, I want to tell you about a really funny and insightful movie podcast called I Saw What You Did. Every week, Millie DeCherico and Daniel Henderson share a double feature with a different wild theme and explore how our life stories impact the movies that we love. Millie and Danielle discuss cult classics through a feminist lens, have conversations about their film crushes throughout the ages, and provide hilarious hot takes on just about everything. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can follow I Saw What You Did wherever you get your podcasts. The Moth is a great podcast to hear true stories told by people from all walks of life in front of live audiences. And The Moth is bringing you a very special episode about a galaxy far, far away. In honor of May the 4th, or Star Wars Day, they're going to feature hilarious and heartwarming stories about the way that Star Wars has changed people's worlds. Listen now by searching The Moth on Spotify, Apple, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. Like many people in the world, I can't stop thinking about Ukraine. And Ukraine was never just a place on a map for me. The Malinsky family emigrated from Ukraine. My grandfather was 15 when he came here, and he told us many stories about his childhood in Ukraine. So in the last few weeks, I've begun to wonder, what is Ukrainian science fiction and fantasy? How does a country dream about itself through its speculative fiction. Now, back in 2017, I did an episode about Soviet science fiction. So I reached out to one of my guests from that episode for suggestions, and she put me in touch with a writer in Ukraine. And that person put me in touch with more writers in Ukraine. I wasn't sure if they'd be able to talk with me, but I got the sense that they're actually glad to have something to focus on besides the war, although the war was never far from their minds. Like I spoke with Maria Galina. For now, she's staying put in her home in Odessa. All right. Well, first of all, uh, how are you doing? Uh, I don't know really because I'm in Odessa. And in Odessa, there is comparatively calm here. Only some shooting from the sea. But to compare, for example, for Kharkov or Kiev, it is very, very calm. When life was much calmer, she wrote novels. One of them was about folk legends of Lviv. And Lviv is the city in the west of Ukraine. And there is a lot of legends uh, which is connected with uh, mystical creations, mystical creations in Lviv. And it is very closely connected with Poland and Polish folklore. I also spoke with Svetlana Taratorina and her friend Volodymyr Arenev. Svetlana is from Kyiv, but like many Ukrainians, she's fled to Lviv because it's to the far west near the Polish border. But before the war, I wrote the novels, sci-fi and fantasy novels, and some comics and the book for children. And I, I, I liked this very much, but now I can say when I will be able to write again. Her friend Voldemir has written over 20 novels across different fantasy genres, including a book called Ashes of Dragon Bones. And it's about dragon uh, bones uh, in, in the ground because some uh, in, in, in past 
dragons ruled these countries and uh, their tyranny uh, built this empire. But these days, he's staying put in the countryside, far from his home in Kyiv. Now, now, now I'm I'm sitting here and I'm I don't write, but I hope, I hope I will. Maybe maybe uh, near days because sometimes you just need to do this just for uh, harmonization. It might be challenging for some writers to feel creative during this time, but it's also tempting to dream about other worlds when the real world is terrifying. In fact, Svetlana says even the way her friends have been talking about the war, they keep referring to fantasy epics. Like we called uh, our enemy, our uh, Russian invaders, orcs, like uh, from uh, Tolkien saga, yes. Of, uh, of, uh, today in news I read, uh, we called uh, some uh, troops on um, near the Kiev um, who lost in our forest. We called uh, him like uh, Wildings, Wildings. From Martin? Yeah, yeah, from George Martin, yeah. <laughs> they write like this, and we uh, we called uh, ourselves uh, like uh, Gondor, and we fight uh, against Mordor. Maria Galina also told me that the story which has been giving her the most inspiration these days is Lord of the Rings. In the situation in Ukraine now, Tolkien is a very psychotherapic, psychotherapeutic uh, literature because there is murder, there is a side of darkness, and there is a side of light, and there is uh, no shades. Of, uh, there is just, uh, you have to do uh, very true things. You have to do the right things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, because uh, I remember in this country after 9-11, a lot of people found, like, as you said, um, found psychotherapeutic comfort in Lord of the Rings and Lord of the Rings movies, because, I mean, even though it is this sort of binary world of light and dark, um, it doesn't feel simplistic. I mean, it actually feels quite scary when you're the one who has to confront these forces that have attacked you or, or have invaded you. Yeah, it is very scary. And I myself now look uh, the Lord of the Rings movie. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> You've been watching it again? Yeah, again and again. <laughs> I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. When it comes to life imitating art, there's been a lot of discussion about how President Zelensky was an actor in a sitcom about a regular guy that becomes president, and the parallels between real life and fiction are eerie. But as I looked into the way that speculative fiction has been developing in Eastern Europe, I discovered that this conflict has also been playing out in imaginary spaces for Russians and Ukrainians long before it spilled out into the real world. We'll explore that after the break. During the Soviet era, Ukrainian speculative fiction was published in Russian. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, 
Ukrainian authors still wrote and published their books in Russian because they wanted to sell them in a much bigger market. But when Russia took Crimea in 2014, Svetlana and Volodymyr told me that was a wake-up call, not just politically, but culturally. I think um, appeared a lot of writers who started writing this moment like me, and we start to write, uh, first of all, from Ukrainian language. We had an idea to develop Ukrainian language, um, uh, science fiction and fantasy. So if I was to read a lot of, if I could read, understand <laughs> Ukrainian, if I was to read a lot of Ukrainian speculative fiction since 2014, would I notice certain themes coming up, certain um, uh, certain genres people like? And, you know, what, what would I observe to say like, oh, you know, I've noticed that a lot of Ukrainian uh, speculative fiction is about this and often speaks to these particular themes. I, I would say, <laughs> okay. Tell, tell, tell. All, all our books, it's, it's so Ukrainian, and all books of Volodymyr is so Ukrainian. Uh, it's about our land, our uh, tradition, our folklore, our history. It's, uh, it's about us and for us, uh, first of all, uh, but about us uh, for other world. I would say many of our stories, uh, I mean, novels and stories, wrote in these days are about war and about occupation and about about our history in post-colonial point of view because many many people want to explore ourselves and what we could how how we could do this by the history by the our traditions by the understanding where exactly we are in in this whole world what is our role? History, alternative history, you know, a subgenre, uh, is one of our very important uh, parts of science fiction and fantasy. And then fantasy, uh, surely, uh, fantasy about ancient times uh, when we had foundation of our country. Another really popular subgenre is magic realism, where the world appears to be realistic but there's a touch of magic to it. It's a huge and very, very old uh, subgenre. Why? Because uh, in Soviet Ukraine, it was one of a few subgenres from uh, science fiction and fantasy. It was, okay, you could write it. It's okay when you, when you write it. One of most important our uh, writers at all, not in genre, uh, Sergei Zhadan. He wrote in uh, magic realism, and he he works with our past uh, post-colonial uh, traumas and trying to understand who we are when we go move out from from the shadow of uh, Soviet Empire. Now, I also talked with Boris Saduk. When we talked, he was staying put in Kiev with much difficulty. He says when the Soviet Empire collapsed. He got into the field of translating speculative fiction into English. And in the 90s, uh, well, every second book issued in this country passed through my hands. Science fiction, I mean. Although he says science fiction has never been as popular in Ukraine as it has been in Russia, a big part of the Soviet mission was focusing on how they're pushing towards the future. Even during Soviet Soviet times, so the Ukrainian science fiction, Ukrainian language, say science fiction, 
was different from those in Russian language because uh, Russian science fiction rather, uh, rather was it as followers to American and English and British science fiction uh, with the spacecrafts, well, science fiction machines and so on. Ukrainian, uh, well, speculative fiction, say not the science fiction, speculative fiction, well, were always been more magic with urban legends, it's rather uh, based on fairy tales than on science fiction. So I actually, I, mean, I don't really know anything about Ukrainian folklore. Uh, could you give me an example of like a uniquely uh, Ukrainian folklore character who gets adapted a lot to like, you know, fantasy novels? Well, uh, one of the most interesting character in, in the, well, in the folklore and in speculative fiction used in, in our country literature is Mavka. Mavka is a girl. It is a girl who lives in the swamp, in the dark forests. It is considered to be evil, but in Ukrainian literature, it is not always evil. So there are a lot of uh, plots uh, about her. Usually it's romantic. You, you know that uh, Mavka can fall in love with some handsome boy, and try to attract him and to bring him to to swamp and so on. I mean, he's kind of chuckling with this idea, but with every folktale, it depends on how you spin it, how you make it resonate with modern-day audiences. But Boris says another difference between Russian and Ukrainian speculative fiction is how seriously that genre is taken in each country. Actually, Ukrainian readers do not make a big difference between the, between the so-called mainstream and, and speculative fiction, actually. It is all literature. In Russia, the, the, the difference is in Russia, in, in the Russian culture. They say that mainstream, mainstream literature is, is better, it's a, it's a big literature, while the science fiction or fantasy literature is, well, little brother or little sister, you know. In Ukraine, no. In Ukraine, it's all just literature. If you read a book, if you read a novel, it doesn't matter if it's science fiction, is it fantasy or a mainstream. It's a book. And Maria Galina says there's an economic reason why speculative fiction has to be good enough to compete with realistic fiction. It comes down to the price of paper. Here, there was very uh, high prices on publishing process for paper, for process of publishing books. So Ukraine has to develop uh, highbrow speculative fiction. For example, here we have the biggest uh, literature prize in Ukraine, it is Shevchenko Literature Prize. In the final of this prize, one of the finalists is the uh, folk fantasy of uh, Vladimir Arin. And it is very interesting phenomenon. I cannot maybe uh, imagine something like this in Russia. If the finalist for that literature prize sounds familiar, that's because Voldemir Arenev is Svetlana's friend, who we heard from earlier. As Ukrainian writers have been fostering a sense of national identity through folklore and fantasy, Russian writers have been fantasizing about their country in very different ways. Voldemir says, in the early 2000s, Russian and Ukrainian writers were very friendly with each other. But the first major break happened around 2005, after the Orange Revolution. It was a political movement in Ukraine, where people demanded a more Western European style of government that was more democratic and more accountable. 
yes and uh, in this moment uh, many voices uh, from russia from our friends they thought uh, we should be very quiet very friendly always we don't have a right to think about uh, other way other way of our uh, future I also talked with Ukrainians who had emigrated to the United States, like Anatoly Belolovsky. Anatoly lives in New York, and he's translated Ukrainian speculative fiction into English. He says in the early 2000s, Ukrainian and Russian writers were attending the same fantasy conventions, like Worldcon, which is a con that's held in a different country every year. And these Russian and Ukrainian writers were becoming friends on Facebook. Oh, absolutely! They all started out in the same, in the same group, on the, at the same cons, in the same circles, and then it all went to hell. And I think uh, right now there are science fiction authors who have been at the same cons in the '90s, who are now in charge of uh, entire military units on both sides of the conflict. It's as if uh, Heinlein and Asimov ended up on opposite sides of a civil war. Even though these two communities have drifted over the last 17 years, Svetlana and Voldemir were still horrified to see their Russian colleagues endorse and promote Putin's propaganda about the war in Ukraine. They were uh, our colleagues, uh, but now they uh, are our enemy. And uh, one of these author, if I don't mistake, now is a guest of honor on a Worldcon in 2023. Uh, but uh, Sergey yes. why, why we could speak about it? Sergey yeah. Lukyanenko, after translated in, in English, uh, he says we need to bomb all these cities and and so on and so on. And he is the guest of honor of Worldcon 2023. In, in China, China. Uh, that, that uh, it will be in China. The Russian science fiction writer they're talking about has been so anti-Ukraine, he even refused to allow his books to be published in the Ukrainian language. And this turn to the right didn't just happen in the world of politics. It happened inside the fantasy worlds of Russian science fiction. Alex Schwartzman is a Ukrainian-American living in New York. He writes fantasy novels and does translations. And he says a lot of Russian fantasy is not political, but. But there's also an entire huge industry of popular and populist novels that are very much kind of making their bread on the idea of re-emergent Russia and uh, uh, Russia regaining its place in the world often through some kind of an invention or maybe you know the russian people are the ones that contacted the aliens or 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 developed the star drive or something happened that that made russia a great power again so that definitely has been a, a fairly common theme in russian fiction uh, in, in russian speculative fiction in recent years and how does that happen so you're saying it's it's a lot of is it a lot of it through science fiction the russians contacted the aliens or is there any kind of like historical revisionism through historical fantasy there's both. Uh, so as far as the fantasy elements go, there's a very popular uh, subgenre now called Papadanets, which is a word that uh, refers to somebody who got somewhere. So essentially it's, uh, you know, you, it's not necessarily that they're going into a, a fantasy universe. It could be somebody who is a modern person that ends up in a 
previous era, in the historical periods. For example, there's a very, very popular series of novels about a modern era Russian nuclear submarine that ends up you know, back in, you know, going back in time to the 19, late 1930s and basically ends up destroying the Nazis and then subsequently defeating the Americans as well. There's been over 20 novels about this time-traveling Russian nuclear submarine. Anatoly says beyond putting America in its place. Also, at one point, they're putting Ukrainians in their place, by the way, just by the way. The interesting part of that is, yeah, they mess with a lot of things. They steal the the ship that's taking uh, it's taking uranium from uh, Belgian Congo to the U.S. But there's only one person they actually go out and assassinate in the United States, and it's very interesting who that person is. It's Hyman Rickover. Who? Hyman Rickover, the father of the nuclear submarine fleet. Oh, huh. Basically the one person they consider irreplaceable in all of the United States in the 1940s is Hyman Rickover. I also learned that Hyman Rickover was born in Poland when it was occupied by Russia, and his family fled to the U.S. to escape anti-Semitism. And while Ukrainian culture has been moving towards a model of diversity and tolerance, Russian culture has gone in the opposite direction under Putin. And that shows up in Russian speculative fiction as well. Because uh, of the association with homophobia and transphobia with the Russian government, the people who would be likely to be more feminist and uh, more inclusive have drifted toward the, the Ukrainian point of view in their fiction, even if they're not actually Ukrainian. Ukrainian writers have been watching this imperial march of Russian fantasy for a while. That's another reason why they've had to develop a more protective stance in their literature, even if their novels aren't overtly political. Just the fact that they're set in Ukraine and written in Ukrainian makes them stand apart. Again, here's Maria. I think that there are the stories of national spirit. Of it based on Ukrainian folklore, because uh, first of all, they need to build the past their own past, not as the past of the empire, but the past of the, the quite independent country. For example, Svetlana wrote a novel in 2019 called Lazarus, which is set on the eve of the First World War. It's about Ukrainian folklore characters that are forced to live in ghettos. My, my, my book, I think it's uh, about uh, our post-colonial tra trauma uh, because my, uh, my folk creatures who uh, lived in Kyiv in the beginning of the century, they fight for their, uh, their land. And this moment, they are the part of a big empire who discriminates this creature in, in the Kyiv. Uh, and it's, it was difficult, but... Um, hopeful time for us in, in real, in, in our history. Now, some of her work is more directly political. Like her second novel is a post-apocalyptic story that's set in Crimea. And uh, for me, this uh, language of uh, speculative fiction gives me a possibility to write about this very hard, very, very hard term and uh, 
I was born in, in Crimea and uh, uh, eight years I, I can't uh, go to, to, my, to my home. Well, what in, in your, this future that you imagine, what can you describe a little bit what this future of Crimea is in your book? In my book, and I, I, I love uh, fantasy for this. Uh, fantasy give our hope uh, for uh, for victory and for for good future for for all of us. And Boris told me about a project that's a collaboration between different fantasy writers across Ukraine. There is a very interesting project which is run right now, that and they issued just the first books. It's called the Agency Independence. It's a project where, uh, well, many leading Ukrainian writers come together, uh, gather together to make the, uh, a common world. Things like what what uh, DC Comics do or uh, Marvel do with their world, you know. Oh, like a shared a shared universe. Yes, authors came together and created uh, created a world around Ukraine as a country, as a nation. And there is an agency that protects the country on many fronts. In reality, in, in time, in parallel worlds. Interesting. So, so they have the, So they basically the writers have said, let's create this agency of independence. We'll each keep writing our own our, our own stuff, but let's agree that in all of our books, this agency of independence exists, and we can even borrow characters from each other's books because this is a shared universe. Exactly, because I, it's really it's really very interesting project. Really, Boris put me in touch with the organizer of the project, who told me they have over thirty writers involved. All of them established Ukrainian sci-fi and fantasy writers. This agency of independence mostly fights against a Russian agency called Wings of State Security, which is trying to undermine Ukraine with its supernatural abilities. So far, they've published one anthology of short stories. They're planning on publishing more, and they're hoping to develop a comic book and a TV series. But the war put everything on hold. In the news, I've seen a lot of inspiring stories about how Ukrainians are standing their ground, often in very creative ways. But if Vladimir Putin's goal is to conquer Ukraine, he's going to have to snuff out the idea of Ukrainian independence. And he will fail, because to do that, he'd have to conquer the imaginations of the Ukrainian people. And that's one place his army can never go. That is it for this week. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Maria Galina, Boris Siduk, Voldemir Arinev, Svetlana Tarotarina, Alex Schwartzman, and Anatoly Belilovsky. I put links in the show notes to different charities that you can give to, which are helping to resettle refugees. Now, unfortunately, most of Svetlana, Maria, and Voldemir's novels have not been translated into English, at least not yet. But Alex Forsman lives in the U.S. and writes in English. And his new novel, The Middling Affliction, comes out in May. My assistant producer is Stephanie Billman. You can like the show on Facebook and Instagram. I also tweet at emalinsky and Imagine Worlds Pod. If you really like the show, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts or mention it on social media. That always helps people discover imaginary worlds. And if you're interested in advertising the show, you can drop us a line at contact at imaginaryworldspodcast.org. 
and I'll put you in touch with our ad coordinator. The best way to support the podcast is to donate on Patreon. At different levels, you get either free Imaginary World stickers, a mug, a t-shirt, and a link to a Dropbox account, which has the full-length interviews of every guest in every episode. The show's website is imaginaryworldspodcast.org. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.